Hello and welcome to Unorthodoxy. I'm Duncan Rayburn and we have arrived at episode 5 in our series on the book of Exodus. And as you've probably noticed, we're not moving particularly quickly through the book. We're in fact only at chapter 3. And at this rate, you might be thinking that we're not going to get to the end of the book before the end of the year. But don't worry, there will be parts of the story that I'll move through more quickly. Obviously, I do want to be able to talk about Exodus at the right level of detail to be able to leave you with a really decent uh, meal and some food for thought, that is. I'm going to get stuck into some pretty heavy metaphysics, although I suspect that this will still be probably too superficial to be called heavy, but it might be quite hard work for you if you're not too familiar with the ideas here. I hope I give you enough uh, of a handle on, on what I'm talking about so that it does make sense. In any case, it may help you to know that I'm drawing in a really big way from the Christian Platonist tradition. And if you want a kind of introduction to Christian Platonism, read the work of Paul Tyson. He's a wonderful writer and he, he writes with tremendous clarity, um, but with a very um, good grip on, on some of the scholarly debates. For a slightly more weighty examination of some of the motifs that I'm going to be touching on, in, especially in this episode, uh, definitely check out the work of David Bentley Hart, especially his book, The Experience of God, which is an astonishingly good book. And I think that this stuff will really challenge you in ways that are truly profound. So with that out of the way, let's get back to Exodus. As we continue to listen in on the conversation between Moses and God, we discover God's announcement that his plan is to deliver the Hebrews from the grip of Egypt and to take them into a land that is flowing with milk and honey. Those are his words. To a people in slavery, milk and honey would have been really good news because they're very sweet things, genuine luxuries, in stark contrast, obviously, to the bitterness of slavery. We should notice though that milk and honey, while both sweet, are not sweet in the same way, and also they don't last for an equally long period of time. Milk spoils quickly, and honey preserves rather well. And the point of this is that the new land of promise is not a paradise in any permanent sense, but is a place like any other that needs to be handled with care, because it could spoil. That's what the milk seems to symbolize. Also, as God explains, the land of promise is occupied by other people already, which means that no matter how you look at it, getting there is not going to be easy. Conflict is going to happen. In this story, God, it turns out, is much more of a realist than an idealist. God then tells Moses that step one in his plan is that Moses will need to go back to face Pharaoh, his brother, and ask him directly to let the Hebrews go free. Moses, obviously, does not like this idea, and he tells God as much, but in a very peculiar way. He asks a question, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? The first part of the question is, of course, a question of identity, something that we've already spoken about. The who am I question implies the obvious for Moses. I am nobody, he seems to be saying. I don't belong anywhere. I used to be caught between two brothers and two nations, but right now I'm just a lowly shepherd allied to a nomadic group of nobodies. Also, Moses seems to be saying, just 
in case you haven't noticed, I'm not exactly on equal footing with the king of Egypt anymore. I imagine that this is the sort of subtext that God would hear in Moses' question, and he thinks it, quite frankly, to all be irrelevant to the plan. What matters is not who Moses is, but who God is. In other words, what matters is not ultimately our social standing as much as what is ultimately real and what that means for taking the right steps towards the right actions. The primary qualification for doing the right thing, it turns out, is just being human. All other categories of human functioning and knowing and believing and belonging seem far from central when the primary issue is being in line with what is ultimately good and real. So God doesn't tell Moses how to solve his identity crisis, at least not directly. Instead, he tells him who he is, that is, who God is. Um, I will be with you, God says. In other words, if you want to sort out your identity crisis, stop looking at yourself. <laughs> There's nothing there in yourself that's going to help you anyway. You are, from the perspective of eternity, a bottomless pit of questions and uncertainties and doubts, and those aren't great for building a, a life of purpose, intention, and meaning. It's not that your questions and uncertainties and doubts aren't relevant. They're, they're, they are in some way. It's just that they're not nearly as relevant as you think they are. This for me parallels the Chestertonian idea that when you want joy, make sure that you don't enjoy yourself. Enjoy everything else, if you like, but don't enjoy yourself. Deep joy and a rich sense of meaning are not experiences available to narcissists because they only enjoy, supposedly, themselves. God also tells Moses that his presence with Moses will be known most obviously in the fact that when Israel is free from Egypt, they'll be able to worship God on this mountain, the very mountain Moses is on. Of course, many people who read through the Bible look at this idea that God wants worship as proof that God is, in fact, a narcissist. But this is simply the result of a horrible anthropomorphism, something that I'm going to be talking about quite a bit. At least in reverse, I'm going to be implying that any anthropomorphization of God is a problem. So consider Simone Weil's idea that the most unselfish thing that God could possibly do is to let people love him. Think of God, for instance, as the pure plenitude of love and wholeness. Then consider the idea that worship is always an act, no matter what is worshipped, of the subject opening herself or himself up to what or whomever is being worshipped. Well then, God's giving access to his love and wholeness is totally unselfish. After all, there's nothing in it for God, at least as various forms of classical theism would argue, God doesn't need us in the least. He is fine without us, and our worshipping him therefore cannot ever be a way of propping up his ego. We, on the other hand, are really not fine when we're disconnected from the ground of being. We move quickly towards disintegration and annihilation when we're out of touch with the divine. In the words of one of the psalmists, worship transforms the worshipper into the likeness of what is worshipped. And in the final analysis, the one worshipped is not the primary beneficiary. It's the one who worships, who gains the most benefits from worshipping. 
So yes, it really is the most unselfish thing that God could do to let us love him. In any case, picking something lesser to worship will just transform us into lesser beings. It would turn us into the image of whatever it is we've elected to substitute for God. Given that we seem to be incapable of not worshipping something in practical terms, then there really is no such thing as atheism. What there really is is a distinction between those who are aware of what or who they worship and those who simply aren't. You can more easily tell what people worship, what they really believe, by spending time with them than by listening to their explanations of what they believe. After all, you can easily say that you believe in the love of the enemy. But how does that look in your actual reality? How do you treat those who wrong you? In the end, worship may just be the most practical thing about people's lives. Instead of being about what kind of cheesy songs people are going to sing on a Sunday morning. Moses, who at this point in the story doesn't exactly have a direction in life, meaning that he isn't quite clear on what to worship, which is the same as being quite unclear on who he really is, is starting to think that this God speaking to him through this burning bush might be onto something. What matters is what he and his people are going to end up doing. Moses doesn't yet know who exactly this God is. Sure, he's the God of his forefathers, we've already looked at that, but what in practical and ethical terms does that actually mean? Before we get to God's rather shockingly unobvious answer, let's consider again God's allegiance to the people in Moses' history. This might be read as God talking about the importance of memory. Memory is always a moral tutorial. It speaks of many things, of course, and we have a remarkable capacity for post-rationalizing and reconceptualizing what we have experienced, because, of course, even just at a neuro neurological level, memory is always remembering, as in putting mem members back together. But perhaps the primary function of memory is really to teach us what worked and what didn't, what was true and what wasn't. If something bad happens to you, for instance, there is a way of working through the event that gives it more power than it deserves. And then there's the way of working through the memory in order to live differently, to look to the future in a different way, with new eyes in a way. The same applies to what is good. What matters most, it seems to me, is how memory can inform what we pay attention to and then what we do next. If certain assumptions laid you down a blind alleyway into a gang of robbers, so to speak, although I suppose that literally happens to some people, the memory of that experience will tell you that those assumptions weren't working for you. If certain other assumptions taught you to speak in a way that was neither edifying nor persuasive, then memory, and of course considered reflection as part of that, will tell you that those assumptions need to be checked carefully and then Maybe a few of them need to be disposed of. God first announces himself to Moses as the spirit animating the collective unconscious of his people, in a way. And then, when Moses informs God that it's unlikely that his people, the Hebrews that is, will listen to him, he asks God again who he is. That is, who God is, not who he, Moses, is. Although the answer to the question is going to end up being one of the ways that Moses ends up redefining his whole existence. Why, though, does Moses 
want to know what God's name is. In ancient Egyptian belief, names express the fundamental nature of the things to which they refer. So, for example, the most mysterious of the gods was Amun, meaning the hidden one. So, that's what he was, hidden, most mysterious. Also, knowing the name of a deity helped people to know how to relate to that deity. The funerary god Sokar's name meant cleaning of the mouth, which is a very weird name, <laughs> but it was linked to a ritual known as the opening of the mouth. So there was some kind of link there. Then lastly, to know the true name of a god in ancient Egypt meant to have power over the god. This is particularly well illustrated in the myth in which Isis poisons the creator god Ra and then refuses to cure him unless he reveals his secret name to her. And then, upon learning the name, she tells it to her son Horus. The result is that both Isis and Horus get more knowledge and more power, because they knew the secret name of Ra. Moses, having grown up in Egypt, would have been influenced by these ideas. If he could just name God, maybe he thought, he would know his essence, how to relate to him, and, and even have a measure of power over this god that no one else possessed. Um, it turns out that last one would have been pretty wrong. Language, of course, is, is profoundly powerful. <laughs> we use it all the time, but I don't think we necessarily take a lot of time to, to really think about what it means that we have this capacity for language. In general, when we name things, we tame them. Naming is taming, in a way, which is why naming can also lead so easily to idolatry. To name is potentially to place reality within our control. That's, that would be idolatry. This is profoundly helpful to a certain extent for coping with life, but it can also hamper our access to, to reality. Think of, of this scenario. Think of the scenario of getting a diagnosis from a doctor of some kind, or a medical practitioner, or a psychotherapist. A friend of mine, for instance, was diagnosed with depression very early on in his uh, life, and he only discovered many, many years later, and, and after many struggles with trying to find the right medication to help him to cope with the world, he discovered that the original diagnosis had been wrong. It wasn't depression, it was bipolar disorder. And even that later diagnosis wasn't exactly a solution. It was more like a journey of figuring out what to do next, how to move forward. So in a way, you could think of a name as a method uh, for dealing with the experience of a thing. So it's really important to take time to figure out how we, like Adam, have named the world, or God for that matter. If we've named things right, then reality will open up to us. If we name things incorrectly or poorly, we will find that the world around us will shut down. Although maybe if we've named the world wrong, we won't even notice that we've shut the world down around us until it is too late. One way to know if your name for a thing is right is if it allows you an opportunity to ask more questions about it, to dig deeper, to truly understand. Bad names are almost certainly opportunities to disengage from things or to dismiss things. People often use categories as if they're arguments. I'm sure you've seen this happen. I'm sure some of you have even 
done this. So you would use a label like stupid conservative or irrational liberal, for instance. But those kinds of labels, those names, end all conversation because they don't allow for any kind of genuine follow-up questions about the actual content of a particular, say, ideology or belief system. Better questions or better ways of engaging with names would be things like what kind of conservative or liberal are you? What kind of um, content does your ideological position have? And why does that make sense to you? In an age of increasing polarization, it seems to me that at least half of the trouble we have in navigating the world today is that we don't know how to name things properly. What matters about any label is how many doors it can open for you. If, if all the label is doing is shutting doors, and of course every label is going to shut certain doors, that's, that's fine, that, that has something to do with its concrete specificity, but if all it is doing is shutting doors for you, then maybe it's time to rethink the label. To me then, Moses is being profoundly wise, really practical, to ask this divinity to reveal his name. He wants to know who he's dealing with, how to relate to him, how the whole power dynamic is going to work. God's response to Moses is nothing short of pure surprise. It's kind of sublime. It is, in a way, an event or a rupture in ontology, as the French philosopher Alain Badiou would call it. God sets himself up as a god of history and then announces his name as I am, which is to say that he is in actual fact the God who transcends history altogether. I love this idea because it suggests the basic notion that we first gain access to higher orders of reality and ultimately the highest order of reality through the concreteness of our actual experience. God then, as this intimation of transcendence suggests, is the ground of being. This for the early Christians is what is meant by the fact that God announces his name as I am. The idea is that he is so perpetually present that he transcends all dimensions of presence and absence completely. He is in a way, I know this is going, going to sound weird, but he is in a way more present and more absent than both presence and absence. To put it another way, God would be the is of both is and is not. God is not some being higher up along the chain of being, uh, but would be that which ultimately transcends the chain of being entirely. To grasp this is to grasp that God is in essence qualitatively different from the order of being. He is unlike anything that you and I can know, and yet, surprisingly, is knowable since all beings participate in him. The doctrine of the analogy of being, which was developed by Thomas Aquinas, offers the kind of mental arithmetic necessary for creating a bridge between the ultimate mystery, God himself, and the most intimate knowables. But I'm not going to go into the details of that um, here. Take many of the rampant debates between new atheists and creationists as an example of why this stuff is important. New atheists spend an inordinate amount of time arguing against some kind of old grey bearded dude in the sky who ordered the known universe, and they're very adamant that there is no God. They do not ever successfully define God, <laughs> which is a problem, and what they end up with is a kind of argument against a being 
that that would be higher up in in the order of the chain of being but they never successfully can argue against the ground of being itself trouble is that creationists tend to argue the opposite of what the new atheists argue and in the process they basically manage to achieve uh, achieve a kind of um, argument for deism which is really that there is a god some sort of distant deity who did sort of set the clockwork of creation into motion and then and then made sure that it ran in a particular way. Both new atheists and creationists seem to me to be operating under the spell of the idea that God is merely quantitatively rather than qualitatively different from all other beings. In other words, they're arguing not about God, but about a God. From the, from the perspective of classical theistic metaphysics, they're both barking up the wrong ontological tree. God for them is a being like all others, but is simply better or more than other beings. Think of the usual definition of God as omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent. The usual understanding of these terms today, at least as far as I can tell from reading many things and from engaging with people in conversation, is that they are taken, the terms themselves are taken to mean that God must be more powerful than we are, more available or present than we are, knowing more than we do, and possessing greater amounts of goodness than we do. In other words, there is a quantitative uh, category that comes into play in, in defining these terms. And at first, I mean, if we're not paying attention, this sounds kind of right. You know, God is more powerful, right? But <laughs> this is horrendously, and I would say short-sightedly, wrong. Again, all of this makes God out to be simply quantitatively rather than qualitatively different from us, simply as being a being rather than as being the ground of all being. The classical view on this definition would be something more along these lines. God, God's power is not necessarily more than ours, but is of a totally different order of power entirely. The same thing goes for presence, knowledge, and goodness. For instance, God is, so to speak, goodness itself, whereas we are good only insofar as we participate in the goodness of God. I know I'm raising all sorts of issues here that are, like, they need, you know, several books uh, to, to kind of go into, but I do think this makes for a much more coherent view of how the created order, in fact, works. Um... And this, in fact, to me, has some pretty profound existential implications. If God's perfection is just our perfection multiplied or extended into some quantitative dimension, perfection then becomes something that we have to strive towards. A little bit like we would strive towards, I don't know, any particular location up a mountain, strive up to the peak of Everest or something. And then, well, if this were taken to be the truth, that would mean that it's probably good to just give up because that sort of perfection, that distant and that hard to reach, is just going to be impossible to live up to. The usual Protestant stance on grace derives from this act of giving up, actually, as far as I can tell. You can't get to that kind of perfection. So don't do any work. Don't bother. By grace you are saved, and so on. This, I 
I think, arises from a misunderstanding of St. Paul, who wasn't actually talking about ceasing all moral effort, but was instead talking about how easily ritual activity, i.e. what he calls works, get in the way of genuine goodness. In classical theism, all primary moral action derives from being aware and present to the goodness and perfection already present in the order of sustained being, since all sustained being rests in the ground of being, rests, in other words, in God. I think this stuff is pretty important if you want to have a coherent worldview, something that is, in my view, sorely lacking in even a lot of so-called Christian theologies. There is in, in this emphasis on the qualitative difference between the Creator and His created order, thus also an emphasis on the created order's secondariness and its dependence upon the Creator at all times. The point here, of course, is that the early Christians read the enunciation of God's name as being a signal of pure transcendence, and to align ourselves with this transcendence is to align ourselves with the possibility which is ever present in the ground of being, that at every moment something is being called out of nothing. When Moses is still reluctant to, to go along with God's plan, on account of the fear that people will still not listen to him, even if they know God's name, God gives him two signs. The first sign has Moses' shepherd's staff turn into a serpent and then back into a staff again. The symbolism of this is fairly obvious. What is strong and uncorrupt has been corrupted into, by something serpentine, but God will then reverse this the flow of, of denigration. He will take the what is uh, corrupted and turn it into something that is redeemed. He will, in other words, make straight what has been rendered crooked. The second sign has Moses' hand be afflicted with some kind of skin disease and then be healed again. And the point is, again, that what has become diseased will be made whole. So the miracle is never just a, an amazing thing that happens. It is always a sign. It, it's pointing to a kind of deeper reality. Moses is still, after all of this, and it's a pretty impressive display. I mean, you've got to think about this. He's seen a burning bush that is not being consumed. He's, see, he's seen two miracles. He's literally heard the voice of God. But he is still plagued by doubts, which I think is just is so funny. And he tells God, and I'm going to quote from the King James because it's it's great. He says, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. <laughs> so Moses is never so articulate as when he is talking about how inarticulate he is. And this sets up a powerful theme that Exodus explores in various ways, namely the idea of the exile of the word. As much of the discussion on naming God has suggested, the slavery of Israel has not just concerned the physical conditions of a group of people, but has concerned a loss of articulation, a loss of their ability to actually make sense of the world that they live in. This is an idea that I definitely need to say more about, but I'll have to do that in the next episode. Thank you very much for joining me, though. It's been a bit heavy on the metaphysical front, uh, but I hope you've enjoyed that in a way. Um, at least it, it will be good food for your thinking. And um, yeah, until next time, take care, everyone. Cheers. Cheers.